0: Welcome to a special breaking news episode of Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together some of the best-known former Department of Justice officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. And what a day it has been on Capitol Hill as the House brought to testify two career public officials who told a tale of seamy and corrupt conduct by the President of the United States. I'm Harry Littman, I'm a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General. And I'm also a current Washington Post columnist, and we are joined by two seasoned prosecutors and Talking Feds regulars. First, Barb McQuaid, as you know, the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and a professor from practice at the University of Michigan Law School. Thanks for joining, Barb. Thanks, Harry. And with us also, Glenn Kirshner, who served in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia for 24 years and rose to the position of Chief of the Homicide Section. He also served on active duty as an Army Judge, Advocate, General Prosecutor. Glenn, thanks for being here.
1: Happy to be here, Harry.
0: All right, let, let's get right to this historic day that it, it was on the one hand, a vivid recitation of really stunning conduct. But the question remains at the end of the day, did it move the needle even a little bit? I want to focus on the facts. For starters, that's where the House uh, shift and Democratic colleagues started so first, just people, there, there are a couple new points to get to. But what about the things we already knew? They marched through them. Uh, sometimes Schiff took the questioning, uh, and he's a former AUSA. Sometimes it was Dan Goldman, our former colleague. Did they basic, as prosecutors, would you say they basically went in flawlessly? Everything we sort of knew about before um went in without a, a hiccup and it and a, and is now cleanly established on the record. Glenn, did, what's your thoughts there?
1: You know, I thought the um the Democrats sort of did a nice workmanlike opening statement and presentation of the evidence. Um you know, we all know that taking a witness particularly professional career public servants like George Kent and Bill Taylor through the paces of a direct examination after you've had the benefit of their deposition transcripts to study and absorb and use as a basis to draft your direct uh, is not all that
0: challenging. I mean, you put one foot in front of the other, basically, in here, a big advantage that prosecutors don't normally had have, they got to use leading questions. So so Goldman and Schiff could just say, isn't it correct, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I, and I think they they sort of put a nice uh, chronological, coherent, compelling, overarching story together. It wasn't that exciting, but I think they sort of touched all the bases. So for those uh, of, of us who chose to watch it, Um, there was a lot of information to take in and a lot to absorb, and I think it was well presented.
0: Yeah, that was my sense, too, Barb. I mean, again, they weren't trying to be flashy. They have the facts on their side, but it was solid and unassailable. Would you, as a prosecutor and, you know, people who know this show and know you know that you were for many years a line prosecutor before becoming U.S. Attorney Did you think that, you know, the boxes were were checked and everything was solid?
2: Yes. You know, and uh, as a former AUSA, Assistant U.S. Attorney, and seeing Schiff and Dan Goldman, both former Assistant U.S. Attorneys, I thought that it was perfect. Um, Going, you know, hitting singles, not trying to hit home runs. And I think this is the difference between career professional prosecutors and perhaps politicians who want to grandstand, hit the home run, say, look at me, and own the news cycle, um, and have your soundbite be on the television news for reelection purposes. Dan Goldman and Adam Schiff are just trying to take care of business. Let the witnesses, uh, be the showcase. Th- those are the soundbites you want to hear on the television news later and see on social media. We want the words coming out of the mouths of George Kent and Bill Taylor, not out of the mouths of Dan Goldman and Adam Schiff. And I think they succeeded in that way by getting them to say some really damning things, not only about kind of what happened, but also I thought they did an excellent job of explaining why it matters, what this harm was. Uh, You know, the Mick Mulvaney, get over it, it's no big deal, we all do it, I think was put to rest today um, by the master class that we got from George Kent and Bill Taylor, and that was no accident. It was facilitated by the understated questioning that Dan Goldman and Adam, Adam Schiff did.
0: Yeah, I mean, that sort of transitions to what was news. So I agree, the sort of 95% that we knew already, they put in a box very cleanly, and not simply with a flow in the room, but, but sort of packaged for framing in kind of 15-second bites on the evening news. But then there were two or three Important additions, and I think you've just put your your finger on one. They really, Taylor in particular, told a story of, of people dying because of Trump's cavalier selfishness and And tied it not just to to Ukraine's interests but to to the United states um but there are a, a, a couple other new things as well so what what did you make Glenn of you know, you know a lot of noise on the cable shows and the papers about this new revelation the phone call that um uh, that Taylor's uh, assistant David Holmes overhears in which Trump asks. Sondland about the "quote unquote" investigations. How big an impact do you think that has overall?
1: I think that qualifies as as blockbuster, and, and the reason for that is. You know, we haven't had a lot of firsthand accounts of Trump's involvement, um, in this whole sad saga. Of course, we have the summary readout of the phone call between Trump and President Zelensky, uh, selective though it, it might be, as we've learned from Lieutenant Colonel Vinman. Um, and the Democrats, I mean, I'm sorry, the Republicans have been kind of incessantly complaining about, well, this is hearsay, it's secondhand information, it's thirdhand information. So the first thing I would observe is with President Trump blocking the testimony of all the witnesses who would have firsthand, non hearsay information? That complaint complaint seems to ring hollow. But with respect to the call itself, I mean, I think it's pretty dramatic that there is now a firsthand witness, two technically, depending on how Sondland performs. But so now there's Sondland and there's oh, David. We have oh. a lot of
0: heat on him, doesn't he, Sondland?
1: Yeah, and, and I am looking forward to uh, what will. <laughs> probably be a cross-examination by Dan Goldman. I, I am uh, anxiously awaiting that. But now we have this phone call where Sondland and Trump are speaking and David Holmes is listening in. He hears President Trump on the other end of the cell phone call and Trump is inquiring about the investigations. And this, I believe, is a day after the call with President Zelensky. And uh, what Sondland tells Trump is that the Ukrainians are ready to move forward. Now, how do I interpret that as a prosecutor when you're talking about bribery? I interpret that as bribery, successful, mission accomplished. So I think that once we hear from the David Holmes and the Sondlands, uh of the of this uh, e- escapade, I think that could really forward the ball.
0: But there was a little nuance in there that I can imagine the Republicans trying to attack. There was Barb. Did you catch this? The assertion that that we investigations, which was the word used, was a code for. Not general corruption, but specifically Biden, Burisma, and the and the like. What was the nature of the of the proof there, and is it a weak uh, link to this new revelation?
2: I think it, we're going to have to hear from Sondland on this. Um, he's going to be back to testify, and I think now that this information is known, he can be asked about it. But I think that it isn't just the overheard call that matters. It's the conversation with this staffer, whose name we now know is David Holmes, has after the call with Gordon Sondland, when Sondland says something like, I think Holmes asks him about, what does Trump think about Ukraine? And Sondland says something like, he cares more about the Bidens than he does about Ukraine. And I think asking him what he meant by that, or or maybe just uh, drawing a fair inference from that, probably matters almost as much as the call um, that that it, it was at least clear to Sondland, uh, who is an ally of Trump and who is working hard to protect Trump, it, it, at least it seems clear to Sondland that that's what is meant by investigations.
0: Yeah. By the way, and as a prosecutor, you hear that statement and you're already thinking of your closing argument. You're going to put up the exhibit with those words in, in you know, 28-point type. Who cares more about <laughs> Okay. And one other sort of new thing that I discerned, it was, you know, it wasn't new exactly, except it was nailed down in, in a way that really, um, rebuts an, um, an important defense that they've trotted out, which is it did come clear in the testimony that the White House, um, that knew, uh, that the whistleblower complaint, you know, preceded the White House's discharge of the, of the impounded military money. So it gave, uh, it, uh, the lie to the the notion that they they had been trying to sell that hey they didn't even you know we released it all no harm, no foul um let's turn briefly to the to the Republicans, you know a tougher hand so i I think we're all kind of in agreement that they did a very solid creditable job. And that's not to damn faint praise. That's the job they needed to do. I, you know, focus on the facts and on the witnesses. So what about the, the, um, Republicans? Did they, would you say, took, take risks? I seem to hear, you know, three or four different lines of defense, inconsistent and not well harmonized. How did you feel they kind of, you know, performed given the hand that they've been dealt? Um, Glenn, what's your thought there?
1: Yeah, I, uh, I sat in on a lot of the Roger Stone closing arguments today, so I didn't see all of the performances. I was kind of in and out of watching the – um, the impeachment hearings, but what I saw it, it did seem like they were sort of all over the place. They have no unified theme in the way they are are attacking or trying to attack um, what the Democrats I think very adeptly laid out for the American people. Um, I mean, you have the Jim Jordans of the world kind of you know garbling his way through all sorts of uh, hearsay complaints and you know, I was amused when he was cross-examining Taylor on, you know, you, you've got uh, six people that you're talking to in four days with three levels of hearsay and, and a partridge in a pear tree. And he's just kind of garbling his way through cross-examination that I thought was entirely ineffective. Um, and then you have others who want to bring up, you know, basically everything, including, you know, Hillary's emails. And I I think that it seems to me that the president has really hamstrung the Republicans in their ability to argue what's probably the best uh, defense that, that they could come up with, which is, you know what, There were some conditions tied on this aid and boy, I hate to ever side with anything Mick Mulvaney said, but you know, that's par for the diplomatic course. And even if this one was executed poorly because Trump is a businessman and not a politician, um, it's not impeachable. It may be something we should condemn and something we should avoid in the future, um, it maybe even it warrants a censure, but it's not impeachable. I think that's a more reasonable and unified approach.
0: You didn't have a, you didn't hear that coming, emerging from the Republicans, uh, today, but just that's what you would be advising them. I think that's yeah. probably the best defense they have, um, that
1: it might be bad and it might be wrong but it's not the kind of bad and wrong that should result in, you know, the removal for the first time ever of a U.S. president.
0: All right. And Barb, let me ask you about this, but in another way. I mean, they they were all over the map, but you've been in, in trials where, you know, at least when it's clear that the government has the burden of proof, the defense throws out different things to see what sticks. Do you think it's going to be necessary for them to have a unified, singular line of defense? Or do you think they can do just fine with, you know, Nunes says this, Jordan says uh, that, and Steve Castor establishes the third thing with with the witnesses?
2: I think that creating chaos is sometimes an effective defense strategy. I think it's a very cynical strategy. I think it seeks to confuse the fact finder in this case the members of the public, uh, throwing out a lot of different themes and having the public say, you know, I can't follow any of this. We're talking all right. about all kinds of things in the steel dossier, and they're all a bunch of crooks, and I can't make he- heads or tails of it. Um, if that's the case, if you confuse people, you you maintain status quo. Y- you guys probably went through the same training I did at the NAC, the National Advocacy Center, where we were taught when I was a brand new AUSA, I remember being taught at the trial advocacy school that- um, In the good old days
0: when it was in (laughs) D.C.
2: That that the federal government in trial rarely loses because the jury doesn't believe its case. The federal government often loses, if it loses, it usually loses because the the, the jury didn't understand its case. Mm -hmm. And defense attorneys exploit that They know that. The burden of proof is on the moving party, on the prosecution. And so if the jury is confused, then they are not going to find that that burden of proof has been satisfied. And so throwing up a whole lot of distractions and trying to uh, attack the credibility of witnesses, all of those things can be effective. I think one dangerous area, though, that the Republicans are treading close to is they keep arguing about how this is all secondhand information and it's right. hearsay. Um, well, be careful what you wish for because th- those with firsthand information are asserting executive privilege or absolute immunity and aren't showing up. And so every time you say that, you are making a stronger case for disclosure of those witnesses and any documents that are being used to protect that as well.
0: Yeah, and there was an effective counter-punching moment. It was just at the end of, it just so happened when a Republican, uh, member at the at the end of his testimony said something like, "We'd really like to see the person in front of us who was the genesis of all of it." And it was just then that the time changed and the Democratic he would led with his chin to and the and the Democratic <laughs> member could say, "We would too. We'd love to see Donald Trump yeah, uh, in exactly. the chair if exactly. they if they can if they can bring that that home." Well, um, okay. Well then, well so back on the other side. So I assume then if uh, just translating that then then back to to Schiff, so they've got to have a really clear set of facts, and I think they went very far in establishing that today. What more do they have to keep clear and clean? Do is it is it an? I mean, do the, the facts don't exactly give a theory of the case, right? Schiff began his. Uh, the whole shebang by an opening statement that that did it what- what do they do they need also to be very clean and crisp on not just the facts but the but the theory of the case and if so uh what do they need to do to ensure that that's um properly carried through
1: yeah, so I think Harry that they also need to um wage something of a hearts and minds campaign. They need to, you know, it's great to be overarching and inclusive and methodical, um, even at the risk of being somewhat dry and long-winded. But I think they need to do something that also grabs the American people's attention. You know, when you think of OJ, you think of if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. When I think of Iran-Contra, I think of, you know, uh, arms for hostages. Um, it would be nice if they could come up with something. And not that I'm a big believer in trying cases by catchphrases, but, you know, I always – Tell prosecutors you need to try to kind of grab the jury by the throat early on with something um, that will, will grab their attention, will impress upon them both the importance of the case and, and the quality of your evidence,
0: and, and then kind of build from there. And here, of course, the jury, by the jury, you really mean the American public. So, it, kind it, of it, a catchphrase it, that resonates, like it, not it, quid it, pro it, quo.
1: Exactly. And, you know, I don't know if it's, you know, arms for political dirt or it's something that in a pithy, memorable way captures what really went on here, which is Trump exploiting his office and his position um, in order to unfairly gain an advantage in an upcoming election. And and it really is arms because that's what he was holding hostage in order to coerce. Uh, President Zelensky to come out and make this public statement about investigating the Bidens. So it's arms and what he's trying to get from Zel- Zelensky, it's not really political dirt. It's really it's a it's a fabricated investigation. He doesn't it's really not- want. He doesn't want an investigation. He wants an announcement that the Bidens are under investigation so he can exploit that on the campaign trail. So arms for political dirt is the best that I've come up with. And I know there are more creative PR people out there.
0: (laughs) Well, first of all, Barb, do you agree they need something almost catchy? In that way, and and I'll just echo. I don't know. I'm not sure. I do, but I do s- sympathize with trying to you know crystallize and condense what's really several levels of corruption. Uh, you, because you, you know you the, the both ends of the transaction. One is using U.S. dollars that the security that that are meant to purchase uh, you know the the security interests of not just Ukraine but the states. The other on the other side making, uh, trying to get Ukraine to get to involve itself in election, but then also in a false way, right? There's nothing on the, and that did come out today. The, you know, the the witnesses were said, you know, we have no evidence at all of anything wrong here. So there's a third aspect where he's not only trying to, dish get dirt for his opponent but it's but it really would be fabricated it's really not less even an investigation than just the announcement of one to use as a talking point if you really are trying to capture all that and roll it into a ball you know and and a ball that that works in five second chunks on evening news so that part ain't easy right
2: it, it, it's not. And as we said before, the Republicans are going to do all they can to try to make it more complicated, to try to say, you know, it's about all of these sprawling different things. But, um, you know, just back again to the same lessons that we were taught at trial advocacy school. You know, one of the things that I remember being taught was when you're crafting an opening statement, don't try to get too flowery. You know, don't start quoting Oliver Wendell Holmes. Right. Um, a really effective opening starts something like this. This case is about blank, and fill in that blank with as few words as possible. So, if you can say this case is about abuse of power for personal gain, or or something to that effect. Um, that is the theme you keep hitting. And you, you know, you have to, uh, fill that in with the details and the facts and the testimony. But everything comes back to that theme. And the, the witnesses we heard today, I think, support that theme. And I think the witnesses we're going to continue to hear. And ultimately, that's what impeachment is all about, Charlie Brown. <laughs>
0: And you have to believe, right, that Schiff, he was a really fine, top notch uh, AUSA in the Central District. Dan Goldman, of course, the same in the Southern District. They've thought this through. I mean, the, the time, they they it's not their. Exact time in the sun that will be in closing summations or whatever, but they at least have those plans and those catch words and the way to to put it in compelling fashion they're not they're not working on that over the next couple of weeks that's in the can already would would you not um agree
1: yeah and, and Schiff I think is a a really gifted advocate I still. Will from time to time, uh, dial up his um, I don't think it's okay" speech, which I I think is riveting in style and content and, you know, the way it was delivered. Um, You know, he he really is a gifted advocate and he's got the intellectual chops to back it up. So um, I think he's he's the right man for the job.
0: He's an effective parliamentarian. You can see why they went with him instead of Nadler. When people would quibble and make points of order in front of Nadler, Nadler almost couldn't stop himself from giving chapter and verse and being kind of, you know, down in the weeds. Schiff very coolly just, you know, batted it aside. Uh, when somebody tried to engage him in colloquy, he had no, your questions are to the witness. So I think he also presides over things pretty well and gives the Nunez's of the world who, who want a grandstand um, fits. Um, let's focus in on the witnesses. I mean, a big part of this, yeah, I'm in, by the time Mueller came out, we not only knew the facts, but we knew the the dramatis persona, as they say. This was America's, you know, first look. Um, at Taylor and and Kent, and how did you think they did just from the the standing of of presentation? Certainly, on paper they were formidable. in 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 personal manner, were they equally strong? What what was your take on them as witnesses?
2: Well, I, I thought they were strong on paper and even better in person. Uh, yes. I thought they were terrific. Um, I thought they really stood in stark contrast to some of the Republicans who are asking the questions. Uh, I mean, I think you both have probably um, known people like these two men. In the federal government, we had the honor of working with a lot of really dedicated public servants, people who were serious, professional, took their um, oaths of office very seriously, served with honor and integrity. And I think that is what we saw with these two men. I mean, they made it clear, I'm not here to help. Uh, Any one side. I'm here to tell the facts. Um, they pushed back when appropriate. They were strong. They clearly were um, s- saw part of their job as defending their colleagues in the State Department, including Marie Ivanovich, who they believe was improperly smeared. Um, I thought that they um, were very impressive. And I think Middle America, as the token Middle American in the group here, I, I think Middle America is, is going to respond very favorably to these guys. I thought they um, seemed like giants and they made the Republicans look small.
0: Yeah, and Glenn, I'll ask you about that in a second. But it—I've been surprised again and again that the first instinct, seeming the the only instinct of Republicans, is to try to dirty up whoever comes before them. But man, is that a tall order with with these guys? I don't—I don't see how they do it, Glenn.
1: Yeah, um, Bill Taylor in particular gave me patriotic goosebumps, and you know what it reminded me of? Um, yes, as Barb said, we we worked with lots of folks, men and women like this, who we just respected and admired. And they were all about public service. Um, But when you stack them up against the, you know, the Pompeo's and the Mulvaney's and the Sondland's and, you know, you are reminded of what public service is all about. And what I really appreciated when they were both fielding questions on what I'll call cross-examination from the Republicans they weren't combative. They were answering with the same level of respect and in the same tone and demeanor as they were answering the, the Democrats' questions. And um, that's exactly what we want our witnesses to do. You know, you kill them with kindness and civility and even temper. And, um, you know, they were more than willing to give the Republicans the points at times the Republicans were trying to score, minor points though they may have been. They didn't fight. If it was a yes or no answer, and they knew that it might score a point for the Republicans because they're talking about something that was based on a hearsay conversation, they just gave that up willingly, honorably. And, you know, I, I don't think you could have uh, come up with two better, more thoughtful, uh, more patriotic more respectable witnesses to open the hearings on.
0: Yeah, I so I I really agree. And I would just add two points almost on the intangible level where, you know, the where it makes such a difference when people actually see them. The first is they were really even tempered and and seeming to there to give the facts, except they both, but especially Taylor was because of the even temper, he could just torque it up a little, like 5% or 10% and portray a kind of, you know, fine passion or interest in the national security stakes of the, of the matter. So his, his even unflappability, I think was this great springboard for very effective kind of, you know, slightly turning up of the dial. And the other thing is intangible. Guy has a great voice. Mm. The um,
2: (laughs) he really does.
0: (laughs) You know, it it, it, he's born with a with a voice you want to that's both sort of authoritative but sort sonorous, and I you know I think it just made him the, the top to bottom kind of kind of witness from hell for them and for I mean witness from hell for the Republicans and also like a very obvious. He was, he, he was so, you, you think a lot, I'm, you know, as prosecutors, who's going to be your opening witness and you want you, somebody who's going to set the table well, has panoramic knowledge, but then hopefully begins to build sympathy and a sense of why the jury should care. And they, you know, uh, that seemed to me, I agree, they really hit it out of the park.
2: People on Twitter were saying he had a voice like Walter Cronkite. I'm too young to remember Walter Cronkite, but I I think that's a, a
0: very favorable review. What do you guys think of the bow tie on George Kent? I'm glad that he wasn't alone. I, you know, the, there's just the, uh, uh, you know, I think a bow tie is is okay in the in a broader context, but uh, but uh, you know, I I I think actually uh, bow ties are well, you know, I, well, uh, here, I, I, Glenn, what do you think? I think
1: George Kent's got to do George Kent, and if yeah, he wants to go with go. a bow tie and a pocket square, God
0: bless yeah. him. There you go. Yeah,
2: I think the most important thing is being authentic and being you, right? I mean, if he wears a, yeah. a bow tie every day, he can't show up uh, wearing something else today in a bolo tie, right? Yeah, uh- no,
0: that's a good point. And look, This isn't their, their seasoned, um, career officials, but it ain't easy. You you know, they are in, in, in the, the, um, biggest, um, and brightest fishbowl they will ever be in. And if you're not yourself, it's, you're, it's going to be very easy to throw you off balance and it's going to be obvious. So I totally agree with that. Um, what did, did either of you, you know, pick up in your spider sense as prosecutors where Schiff and Goldman are kind of, you know, going? What, what you know, what's your, it hasn't been fully announced, but for example, Sondlin is obviously, uh, figuring in as a critical, um, uh, person in the whole drama wasn't clear to me what they were, what they may be doing with Giuliani. You know, they, I think in general, there's a sort of five, there, there's a dynamic where you have probably in this order, something like Giuliani, Sondland, Volcker, Pompeo and Mulvaney, you know, are the sort of bad guys, but all can sort of feed up into one another. And of course, most of them won't won't testify. Do the Democrats need or or are they fixing to kind of um, portray anyone other than the president as a villain here? Are they, uh, is it a part of their trial strategy? And does it need to be? to um, be really painting, say, Sondland uh, or Volcker in dark tones? Or is it enough to simply get out the facts about the president? What do you discern is their strategy there?
2: You know, I'm not sure, but I do think there's a risk that the the more you paint some of these other characters to be villains, the easier it might be for people to blame them you know, and point to the empty chair instead of President Trump. Um, so,
0: By the way, point to just I mean, that's a prosecutor's phrase. What do you mean by point to the empty chair?
2: Well, they're not there. They're not in the room. And so they aren't there to defend themselves. And so it might be um, dangerous to paint Rudy Giuliani, for example, as a bad actor here, um, I think he was certainly a facilitator and an accomplice and perhaps a co-conspirator of President Trump's. But if you um, elevate his role or the role of Gordon Sondland or others beyond that, which uh, the facts suggest, I think there's a risk that people will say they they went rogue and uh, they were served poorly. Um, or President Trump was served poorly by them. They were engaging in their own shadow diplomacy way beyond what he ever envisioned. And so I think there's some risk that if you paint them as the boogeyman, um, that it could in some ways provide cover for President Trump. Now, I think you got to be honest about the facts that they were involved and they were facilitators, especially when they come in and testify. Um, You don't want to have them appear to be your pal. Um, You don't want fact finders to have to feel like um, they're on your team. Um, They... Clearly, are wrongdoers here and should be portrayed as such. But I just think if you lay it on too thick, it leaves an out for President Trump.
0: That, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, there's one particular possible gap that real that really does scream out. What are they going to say? And that is the gap. And they and and they adverted to it today. You know, there's just not much. This is what seems so important about the phone call. Not much that comes out of direct. Um, uh, conversation with the president. It, the president's conversations are all kind of given secondhand. But if you don't really fill in the part that, you know, Sondland and Juliana are playing in, in, in particular, then it's likewise hard, I think, to, to, um, roll things back to the Oval Office. I don't know. Glenn, what would be your sense if you were trying it?
1: Yeah, you know, I agree with Barb. The more they paint the Mulvaney's and the Giuliani's and the Pompeo's as villains and wrongdoers, the more opportunity Trump has, and I'm sure we're going to hear this at some point, to just throw them under the bus and point the finger at them. Because he's going to want to say, everything that was done improperly was done by my underlings without my knowledge. Anything that was done properly, like, oh, the aid finally being released, I did. Um, so I don't know that we want to spend a lot of time diluting the attention away from the real wrongdoer who is Trump here, uh, eyes on the prize. And, you know, Trump has some... Major league incentive to want to get reelected. I mean, we've kind of moved away from some of the narrative that we were talking more about during the the Mueller report and the immediate aftermath. But, you know, this this is a guy who can't be indicted while he's a sitting president. So he has a whole lot of incentive to try to win this reelection by hook or by crook, because it could very literally, this sounds hyperbolic, but I don't think it is, it could very literally be the only thing keeping him out of prison. Um, And then secondarily, something I don't think we've talked too much about is every day that he withheld that aid that Congress had allocated to the Ukraine to protect itself against Russian aggression was another day that made Russia very, very happy. And gave Russia a greater foothold by the day in Ukraine. So I don't think we should ignore that as yet another motivating factor for Trump because we've heard it and I believe it that all roads with Trump lead to Russia.
0: Yeah, but, all right. So now back to these um, secondary players and whether they're villains or not. Is it is it clear? Does that does uh, do, does any either of you have any doubt that Sondland and Volker will testify? Uh, will will they? Can they try to stay away? Presumably, we don't hear from Giuliani. We don't hear from Pompeo. We don't hear from Mulvaney. Are Sondland and, and Volker have an unbreakable date with the Judiciary Committee? Would you say?
2: I think so. I think it would be hard for them at this stage to try to assert some sort of privilege. They've already testified for uh, lengthy hours. Uh, to now, at this stage, assert some sort of privilege, I think would be challenging. I suppose Sondland could invoke his Fifth Amendment right yes. now that it appears that he could uh, incriminate himself. There have been a lot of contradictions. He had to you know, issue that correction already. And um, the more people testify, the more Inconsistencies begin to appear in his testimony, but um, I, I think we'll see both of them.
0: Glenn, there's one really, I'd say, dramatic pivotal point coming up if he does testify. Uh, remember uh, that um, he he receives a text. What's going on? Or is it, is it really a good idea from from Taylor? I believe to do. You know, why are we why are we doing this for you know political gain of the and uh, and son says call me. Uh, and uh, we and we know that there's a phone call with Trump. And unlike much of the other that 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 pres- that that after which Sondland just, um, you know, tells him, uh, well, there's no pre- quid pro quo, but there's a quid pro quo. Now, it's an interesting situation for the Dems. Everything they talked about today, they knew what the answer would be. Presumably they don't. What what do you think uh, is going to, you know, transpire when they pin Sondland to the wall and say, what did the president and you talk about in that phone call?
1: You know, I'm not all that sure that Sondland is the nimblest of witnesses, because mm-hmm. if he is saying things like, um, you know, listen, the president is saying there is no quid pro quo. So, um, but you know what? If Ukraine doesn't agree to announce this investigation into the Bidens, then we're at a stalemate. Well, you just said in one breath there's no quid pro quo and in another breath that there is a quid pro quo. So, I, I don't know um how You're quick – how quick Sondland is on his feet, um, and I actually um, am kind of with Barb in suspecting that we may see the first Fifth Amendment invocation. Particularly, given I know he's already testified, he's already waived to a certain extent, but um, given that new revelation about the phone call, which I don't, which I think was a revelation to everybody, he may have a fifth, and his attorney may advise him to to plead it. So we'll, we'll have to see what that moment looks like.
0: All right. What a day and, and more to, um, to come, you know, there's a whole different kind of conversation going on now about whether it will matter uh, whether the Republicans will stay completely in lockstep and try to ignore what strikes all of us as being an avalanche of, of evidence. Uh, and this will be playing out over the next few weeks. For now, I'll just say thank you very much to Barb and Glenn um, for t- tuning in on a long day where they've been pundits from dawn to dusk and after. And uh, so so thanks for taking that last um, uh, 45 minutes to give thoughts to the Talking Feds uh, audience. Uh, And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning into Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast or tell a friend about us. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content, and you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lemos, and Rebecca Lopatten. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum and Sam Trachtenberg. Thanks, as always, to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. Thanks for joining. I'm Harry Litman. See you next time.